Hi, everybody. It is the 14th of April, 2022, and it is time for, I think, episode 111 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Hello, I am Luke Thomas. This is my personal YouTube channel. You might know me from CBS Sports or Showtime, but here I am live in the flesh about an hour or so away from going right to the airport because I have to go to Dallas, Texas for the big Showtime pay-per-view event between Errol Spence Jr. and Jordanis Ugas. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. Plus, there's Bellator tomorrow night. I think, by the way, MK is going to be doing a post-fight show for the big Bellator card tomorrow night. It actually is a pretty good Bellator card uh, by any measurement. So we'll talk about the two title fights on that tomorrow night. We'll do Spence Ugas. Uh, we're doing the BC and I are doing the weigh-ins and then the post-fight show. So that should be a lot of fun as well. All right, thumbs up on this video. However, um, usually we do this around 3 p.m., but today we have to do it around noon because I have to travel. So I appreciate everyone making some accommodations if you are, in fact, watching live. If not, that is all right. Um, on the docket, I saw a bunch of UFC 273 questions left over, but whatever you guys put on the community thread, um, that's what we will get to here today. So as I mentioned, let's do this here. Oops, that's the wrong one. How about this one? How about this one? A little bit smoother. Uh, subscribe to the channel if you are new. By the way, I'm bringing a small little camera rig, the smallest one I can bring so I can still do some mobile shooting when I'm in Dallas. So my hope is to do maybe, I don't know about a daily vlog or not, but my hope, my hope is to do um, some updates along the way. Some updates along the way. We'll see how that goes. It's also a function of what they let me shoot, which sometimes can be a bit of an issue backstage, believe it or not. Um, but uh, okay, either way, be on the lookout for something, I hope. Uh, either way, let us get this party started, shall we? All right, let me turn this off. Let's pull up your questions and let's always be closing. All right, all right, and community, there we go. By the way, thanks to everyone who checked out both Volkanovsky interviews. I realize the second one is had some issues, um, but they re-uploaded it and... Um, there were still some issues, a lot of issues with it, but at a bare minimum, uh, I was happy that they got it fixed with the audio and that you could at least hear the conversation. So if you haven't checked that out, please do it. For those who did and had nice things to say, I appreciate it. All right, first up. Hi, Luke. I feel like Robert Whitaker is tailor-made to beat Hamzat Chemaev if he ever makes it that far. Uh, insane takedown defense, talking about Rob. Quick on his feet, power in his hands, great striking, and very good cardio. Your thoughts? Yeah, he'd be a handful. He's a handful for anybody. He's a handful for Israel Adesanya, the um, best middleweight in the world. You know, so <laughs> yeah, anybody, anybody in that division, if they fight Rob, is in for a very difficult evening, right? Even the very best case scenario, you're gonna maybe win three rounds. Like he's very, very hard to fight, especially this renewed version of him after the first Adesanya or the the first Adesanya fight, the original Adesanya lost the the rebirth campaign through Till and Cannoneer and Gastelum to get to Adesanya again. This version of Whitaker is extraordinary. And, and the reason why he would be difficult is not just because he's talented in the ways that you mentioned, all true. No one could ever deny it. But I would I would point to a couple things. One, if it was in the big cage, especially, this would, be, I think, be even more pronounced, although that's a little hard to say, but still something I wonder about. But he doesn't just have good takedown defense, right? So he has, I would say, excellent takedown defense, very good scrambling, um, good at fighting the hands, is not physically overwhelmed in the weight class. 
um, good defensive sensibilities around the fence line. Uh, typically, he got a little bit of a slow start against Adesanya, but then after that, he was off to the races. And then uh, on top of that, the way he maintains range and can blitz and angle off. The thing about it is, it's like if Hamzat, we still haven't seen Hamzat fight someone this difficult. I'm not going to say Gilbert and Robert are the same fighter. They're not the same fighter, not even the same weight class, but, you know, elite opposition is what you would call both on some level. We still haven't seen Hamzat against elite level opposition um, where he didn't fight <laughs> a bit like a jackass. I mean, if you listen to his coach, you watch him scream at him between, was it the first and second or second and third round in the fight against Gilbert, and then you know you just go back and look. This guy was clearly not sticking to a game plan. Bro, you do, you, you do not have to worry about Robert Whitaker sticking to a game plan. You know, so if you take two people, and let's say they're equally talented, not saying that Hamzat and Rob are, but I'm saying you take two people equally talented, and one fights recklessly, and one fights, I won't say conservatively, but let's say smartly and strategically. Dude, the, you know, obviously the person who's fighting chaotically can win, and probably if they fought 100 times would get, you know, I don't know, 10 of them, maybe a little bit less, but somewhere around there. But the other guy's going to whoop up on them the vast majority of the time. You know, so, dude, if, if even if you wanted to grant they were equally talented, which is highly debatable, but even if you wanted to grant that, dude, Rob is not going to fight in a dumbass way. He's not. It's not going to happen. Not even if you got him hurt or tired, he's still not doing that. You know, he's way too smart of a fighter, way too cerebral, way too experienced, right? These guys know. They know, like, okay, you can beat, you can be extremely good, and you can beat a lot of the guys that are ranked five and below maybe pretty easily. But it goes up exponentially in difficulty after that, and uh, they don't they don't fuck around. Kamzat is still in that stage where he's fucking around. Now we'll see what happens after this fight because I think he got a bit of a wake up call. But um, yeah, yeah, Rob would be a very tough fight. <laughs> Rob would be a very tough fight and a, it, 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 almost impossible to beat if you're going to fight recklessly. Not impossible, of course. Things can happen. We you know, but almost impossible to beat him unless you are fighting as dialed in and strategically as possible. Maybe then you can beat him. It only the very best. But if you're not even doing that, you're going to have a real hard time with that guy. Real hard time. We've talked about how Usman's game has evolved with the involvement of Trevor Whitman, but what about Colby with MMA Masters? Have you seen any new things to his game that would suggest he has improved or there is a danger Colby could not improve his game due to the lack of elite sparring partners compared to what he had at ATT. I don't know. I, I tend to think that at third, what is it, Colby, 32, 33, something like that? Let me just double check. How old is Colby Covington? Colby is 34, a little bit older. At 34, he should have a, at this point, his game, I'm not going to say is fully developed, but it's almost fully developed. At this point, what you could improve on, yes, there are things, but you're going to have minimal amounts of improvement. When I say minimal, I don't mean it sounds like I'm saying insignificant. That 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 minimality is still big enough to affect fights that are very close. So there's still a value in training it. There's still a value in still looking to get better. I'm merely telling you what is realistic. There isn't as much to add to his game at this point. Nothing stood out to me right away except an alteration in part of the strategy that he had with Usman. Um, some of the stance switching seemed a little bit more strategic. The distance management was a little bit better this time. Obviously, reincorporating wrestling was a big change. 
So they definitely do. I mean, listen, MMA Masters is a good camp. Those are those are very talented people. They're talented trainers. Um, you know, I saw the gym at Sanford MMA. I got to tell you, folks, I've been to a lot of MMA gyms, and I, I realized that he came from ATT. I'm making a point here. You know, these we you see on MM, on the UFC countdowns, you see, you know, you see the the Sanfords and the ATTs, and even if they go to a small gym, it's kind of hard to tell, dude. Most MMA gyms, when I say most, I mean 99.9 percent of them, they don't look like Sanford MMA. And they don't look like ATT. So even if MMA Masters has a somewhat smaller facility relative to them, and I'm sure that they do, it's, that doesn't that doesn't tell you a whole lot. Um, that's the that's the norm. The exception are these like giant. I couldn't believe how big Sanford was, dude. You walk in, there's this. So you come off the highway or this major thoroughfare, and then you turn onto the road that leads into Sanford, and the road leads into Sanford. That's where we got that drone shot. It is this. Dude, it looked like an Amazon warehouse that had been converted. I'm not even doing a bit. It's that big. And now there's another part of the property that they share with somebody else, but even the space that they occupy is extraordinarily huge. Monstrous, okay? You walk in, and Sanford is to the right, and then they've got to the left. It's all part of the same building, but it's split. And then on the left, they have the Barwis um, Strength and Conditioning and Physio place. So they do like they have like um, PT right like right there on site, dude. I've, I, I I you know again them ATT maybe AKA I've been to AKA as well. They they took over an old um, their current location used to be a giant back in the, maybe the nineties or something, like high end um, like regular Globo gym for for ordinary donks. So they had like a racquetball gym that they just converted into i mean they had more than that they had, you know, imagine every part if you were if you like you took over an equinox or something all the space that you would have that's what aka sort of looks like um even they don't have space quite like sanford does with that giant barwis uh gym to the, anyway it's just crazy it's crazy so you know those things are pretty um special and valuable certainly quite valuable, but not a requirement for success. Most MMA fighters, you know, come out of gyms like that, that are not like that, excuse me, and, and they do quite well. With the sparring partners too, it's like, dude, you know, they need to just bring in guys that can test him around various particular challenges or traits or um, inevitabilities that he'll face in a particular fight. He, he knows how to double leg and then mix in his shots. What they need to do is just fine tune everything to get where he needs to go. That's the stage of his game he's at. Yes, he can still work on his overall striking. He can work on his hands and and then put things together and mix it in certain ways. And that that, that all can be new and, again, hugely valuable. But the vast majority of what it's gonna, a coach is going to do for someone as advanced a student as Colby is is fine-tune things. That That's really what it's about. And MMA Masters is very much up to the challenge of that. They're, they're, they're quite good. Could you clarify the criteria you use for evaluating pound-for-pound pound status? I had assumed that the conventional understanding was an attempt to assess skills and abilities across weight classes if things like weight differences were to be balanced, but it seems like UNBC may use a different metric more related to accomplishments. Additionally, does this more skill-based definition of pound-for-pound pound change your placement of Usman over fighters like Volkanovski, Jan, Whitaker, Oliveira, and Adesanya? Again, if we aren't considering accomplishments, but rather skills transferable across weight classes. Uh, uh, Godzilla just came home from the park. Anyway, um, 
It's a fair. It's a fair point. I, I tend to go back and forth, and I probably have a bit of an incoherent discussion around pound for pound by virtue of the ways in which I sort of change the definition, or you know, not even purposely, but go back and forth between these two models that you have presented. I would tell you that, like the the problem with the first one is, I just don't really know how you can. It's a valuable insight, right? Imagine if weight were standardized, who would be, who would be the best among them. It's a, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to consider, but then how do you measure something like that? In the end, to me, and I, by the way, I don't do official rankings. I don't contribute to Bellator rankings. I don't contribute to UFC rankings. So I don't have a lot of practice doing rankings. It should be noted that that's not, like I'm not the guy who has a very really clear, clear sense of where everybody ranks. But what I would say is that part of the reason is a conflict of interest concern, but the other one is pound for pound, you know, it is designed to mean that, that if the weight were the same, who would really be the best? But when you go about trying to answer that question, that's when the problems begin. And so what you really have is just who has done the best with what they have faced. And then you have to ask a question of, okay, well, how far have they gone? What exactly have they done? Um, how highly ranked were the opponents? How difficult were they? What can we say about them in comparison? And so then it only becomes a function of what are the, the accomplishments and what kind of insight do they have for us that's really the, for me that's the only thing you can do as a reliable indicator of quality um there, there might be a few other ways to examine it and again it goes down to you know if you have two guys in the same weight class where it's like you know manny and floyd okay who's got more stoppages and blah 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 and who made shorter work and does that really tell you the story because you know pacquiao made shorter work of hatton than mayweather did but mayweather beat him first i mean it, it, it can get complicated it can get hard to figure out there's never an easy answer i think the point i would make though is that you have to look at things like, you know, how many ranked guys did they beat? In what, how easily did they beat them? In what order did they beat them? Did they get them? You know, uh, were they in their pre-prime, post-prime? You know, how many t championships did they win? Title defenses, length of reign, all all kinds of stuff. In the end, you just sort of look at these. They're not objective measurements in the sense. I mean, yes, title defenses, whatever. That, that's an objective measurement. If you either you have them or you don't. But again, one against the Korean Zombie, they may not be nearly as valuable as what Komoru did against Colby the first or second time, right? And so then it becomes a difficulty in, in even evaluating what those things mean. So uh, this is why the pound-for-pound -pound discussion is sort of fraught, because at least when you have an, an, an intra-division ranking, right, just welterweight, at least you have weight standardized there. So you can, at least one major variable is accounted for, so all the other ones are a little bit easier to... to to then get a hold of. So that's what I would say. Um, does this more skill-based definition of pound-for-pound pound change your placement of Usman over fighters like Volkanovski? Well, if we were doing like who I who, who I determine to be the most skilled, that is in some way, you know, valuable. But if you're asking me, my, it would change a little bit. It would change a little bit. I'd probably have Volkanovski one, maybe Adesanya two, Komaru three, but you could I could see a case for Komaru two and then Israel three. That That's a little bit your preference for me I think his level of skill in striking is um as like a base skill is I, I, not many fighters have a better base skill than what Adesanya has with striking is the point I would make which is why he uses it so forcefully in his game because it is so much better than most of the pe folks he has to fight uh, yes that would shift it a little bit but getting back to your original question how do you measure pound for pound uh, you would probably be better asked you know getting an answer from somebody who does it day to day but or week to week but outside of measuring what is reasonably, not totally objective, I, the conversation seems to me an incoherent one. 
Hey, Luke, usually boxing cards only have one or two good fights. However, Showtime and PBC really recently have been putting together the best boxing cards from top to bottom. By the way, I didn't plant this. <laughs> if someone actually asked this, then they actually asked this. Spence Ugas might be the best boxing card I've seen in recent memory. Yes. My question is why we cannot get more cards like this from the other networks and promotions. Well, in fairness, I think, you know, Eddie Hearn has turned in a lot of duds, but he's turned in some good cards too. In fairness, I like Eddie Hearn. I actually think he's a really good promoter. Um, I, that's why I'm a DAZN customer. I actually, like, I trust him, you know, not to do the right thing. He's a promoter. He'll do the thing that's best for him and his organization. But, like, is he a – it's the thing with the UFC. Like, the UFC is probably a monopoly, and they probably should be giving a lot more to fighters in their wages. But that said, are they talented promoters? Yeah, they're very talented promoters. It's the same with Eddie Hearn. It's like, did he take money to go to Saudi Arabia? It's like, okay, not great, but – um, is he a talented promoter? Yeah, he's a very, very talented promoter. So it's not totally fair to say that no one else is doing it. But let's say to the extent that they are. And by the way, in fairness, this is, you know, listen, we asked, I asked Steven Espinosa about this during the Canelo fight week. It's like, dude, that you look at that Canelo card, and just the, this is just the reality about this stage of doing business with Canelo. You're going to get an Andre Durrell co-main because, dude, he, uh, Canelo is, and that's a fine fight. And by the way, he had a vicious knockout. But, you know, you couldn't stack that card in the way that you would like, dude, because Canelo is expensive to do business with. And he's earned that. By the way, I don't speak for Showtime here. I merely speak for myself. want to be very clear about that. But, like, dude, the reality is, you know, Canelo comes at a cost. And he's 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 worth that cost. That's why the networks keep bidding to, to pay it because they want to give it to him. Like, everything about that is okay. But the reality is to make money on these things when they're going to pay him that much. And this isn't like the UFC where... Dude, Jake Paul had control of half that show. That was his organization that ran the events during fight week, the weigh-ins, the press conference. Showtime shot them, but that was a Jake Paul Productions or whatever it's called, MVP. You know, they have a call, they have a say over almost everything. They have a say over almost everything. So the margins on those pay-per-views, my understanding is that when you really get a premier talent like that, where they get really expensive, it becomes quite difficult to then round out the rest of the card. Certainly, Errol Spence Jr. is not underpaid. I think he is handsomely rewarded, but he's not uh, even as skilled and, and amazing as he is. He is not going to command the kind of purse that Canelo is. So I think what that does is it frees up a little bit more for the promoter to still make money off pay-per-view and um, for, which is, you know, PBC obviously, but in this case, Showtime is um, going to be a partner to that. And then you can then, you know, if you guys don't know this kid, Brandon, uh, it's spelled like, it's spelled kind of weirdly, Brandonley, like D-U-N. I've never seen a spelling like this. He's on this main card. Uh, he's been on Showbox for a while and then been kind of running through the ranks a little bit. I think he already premiered on Showtime Championship Boxing and now he's going to be in the main card of uh, this Errol Spence Ugas. Dude, Brandon Lee, he's, I think he's, I, He's, I think he's half Mexican, and then I'm, I'm not sure which part of, so forgive me, I'm, um, part, part Southeast Asian, I, I want to say Chinese, but I don't know that for sure, I think that's right. Anyway, um, dude, he has sick power. <laughs> he has huge power, he, he, and, he's, and he's fast, and he's kind of quiet as a person, but he's, he's got a real interesting story, and like, dude, they, he, he's on the, he's, I think, opening up the card for Spence Ugas. Um, yeah. I, I think it's just the reality is you can pay you know you couldn't do what the UFC does where they have like five fights that are all killer potentially and then four more on the prelims and then maybe the early prelims aren't that great you know you can't have that kind of distribution by virtue of what the guys at the very very top make but could you have you know how many times have you guys over the years bought an HBO or you know any kind of pay-per-view whatever for boxing and then the main event was great but then you had two three fights that you were just kind of killing time on 
you know, that that's a common reality. It's better to see what's happening now, which is, all right, you don't get the same depth uh, necessarily with what the UFC can do, but the UFC has extraordinary market control and exertion of power over the fighters in the way that it doesn't exist in boxing. So you have to give and take. But this is this is sort of my point. It's like this is why I like to watch both sports. They offer something a little bit different. You get much more compensated high-end main event fighters, but you get a little bit more depth on one side. And I think even if there were some reforms to, to UFC, you would still get something a little bit lo- more along that model. So, you know, you try to just get the best of where it goes and and um, make decisions like that way. Did Juliana inadvertently stop Kayla signing with the UFC? Now, I think UFC's lowball offer, relatively speaking, was what got her to not sign. But although you could ask, did Juliana winning facilitate a more of a lowball effort um, from the UFC? Probably, probably. Luke, with talks of Henry coming back and possibly challenging Volkanovski for the featherweight belt, how do you see that matchup going? Also, if he were to be successful in winning his third weight belt, where would you put him in your all-time greats list? Well, that's an interesting one. Because if Cejudo become So, Cejudo's already an Olympic wrestling champ, 2008 Beijing Games. Then he became a flyweight champ and then a bantamweight champ. If he retired and then came back out of retirement and beat Volkanovski to beat to become the 145-pound champ, being the first fighter to win three titles in three weight classes. I don't know how you would... Like, he would be your best fighter ever, right? Or your most accomplished. See, this is where we go back to the pound-for-pound discussion. It's like, how would you measure who's the best ever? Well, a lot of other guys stayed active and took a lot more tough fights, which means they accepted a lot more risk. And they competed in an era where jumping weight classes wasn't so easy. It wasn't the thing that was offered to everybody. Okay, all right, so that's one reality. But then the other reality, you know, a guy who is probably, you know, maybe a natural bantamweight but can fight 125, winning at 125, 135, 145 after becoming an Olympic champ, he'd be the greatest combat sports athlete ever, right? Like, what else would you say? So this is where the comparisons would become hard because a guy like GSP and Silva and Demetrius Johnson staying in the fray that way, you know, that's where all the mistakes can happen. Trying trying to be consistent is where the most mistakes can happen. Trying to just kind of, you know, surf the occasional wave, that's difficult because you're risking it, but there isn't you just you're not as exposed to overall as much consistent risk. And so I don't know how you would measure that, but I also just don't know how you would deny Cejudo. I mean, that would be in a that would be I, I just I don't know how many times you would see something like that. You were a gold medalist in a a sport that has worldwide participation, you know, where you've got badasses coming out of India and Iran and Russia, even parts of, uh, throughout many parts of Europe, you've got some hammers coming out of there and in North America as well, even parts of South America on occasion, like men's and women's and all different kinds of weight classes. And it's historical and it's been around a long time. You got a gold medal in that. And then you came over and won three UFC. What else would you call that person? This is, this would be, I mean, at a bare minimum, he's on the short list of top. I mean, top three would be the absolute worst, you could say, for him. All time is what I mean. That would be instant Mount Rushmore consideration. Instant. Uh, but candidly, I'm not sure that that accomplishment would, well, I don't know what it would mean. I, I just don't, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's an insane, yeah, you would have to put him number one. I mean, that's such an extraordinary, plus to beat Volkanovsky? I mean, not just, it's not just winning the 145-pound belt against, you know, somebody who just happened to have the title who wasn't a long-reigning champ. Dude, 
Volkanovski has a claim right now to be the second best featherweight of all time. Right? And, I, and when I mean that, I mean Aldo has a bigger body of work. I realize he beat Aldo, and I realize Max beat Aldo, but I'm saying Aldo's championship run, the top guy at 145, is much, much longer. Um, you know, but you, he, he's, he's an all-time great featherweight already. For him to be, and he's in his prime. And, and for a guy to come off the couch and beat him? Shit, man. <laughs> I don't know what you would call that guy other than number one with a bullet. I just find that extremely unlikely. A, that he would get that fight, and then B, that he could win it. I don't think he can win that fight. I'm not sure who could, but I don't think he could. And I think highly of Henry. Like, Henry is clearly amazing, but... God damn, that's gross. And why is there shit clicking in it? So this looked interesting at 7-Eleven yesterday. Hang on. It's got caffeine in it. Prickly pear. It's all right. All right. Hi, Luke. Big fan of MK. I was wondering if you heard Bobby Green's appearance on Joe Rogan recently. I did not hear that one yet. Topic of PEDs came up, and Bobby Green's coach claimed fighters train in Thailand specifically because of how PEDs are obtained. Curious your thoughts. Wouldn't USADA still be able to test in Thailand? Sure. Sure. Um, but there's probably a belief somewhat matched by the data, certainly through COVID, in terms of all the lockdowns and difficulty of traveling, that, um, you know, we know for a fact that drug testing was significantly down during uh, travel restrictions, which are now being mostly lifted, I think. But in any case, that did certainly impact it. Thailand would be a case where, yes, you. I mean, historically, it has been a place where that has there are a lot of drug use has gone on. I think, in partly by virtue of their pharmaceutical rules, where I think you can get almost they. So they have a real big problem in Thailand with drug resistant bacteria, um, because I think for the most part, my understanding is that you can go to the pharmacy there and get and just buy regular old antibiotics, and as a consequence, there's. Im- over and then in, in, improper use. Like, for example, not only are they using too much of it, but you've seen folks, like, take half the dose, they feel better, and then they chuck the rest out. So that can create a lot of problems. That's why they want you to finish the full dose. Anyway, um, so yes. Uh, but, you know, parts of South America are like that, too. It's just a little bit easier for you to get there. It's just harder to get to Thailand. So there's a broader question of, like, if you live in some place remote relative to where USADA is based, and Thailand's pretty remote relative to that, do you get tested as much as if you lived in Cleveland or California? I've not looked at the data closely, but I would imagine that they would not be um, the same. I would imagine that USADA tries to make sure that they get as much as possible so there's not a huge yawning gap. So some of that might be overstated, but you know, do I think that fighters go to overseas places with loose pharmaceutical rules that is a little bit harder to detect to get probably also guys, and not just the drugs themselves, but the chemists who can make proprietary stuff or also can offer a drug regimen that is, you know, reasonably undetectable or difficult to detect. Yeah, there's probably also that as well. You're not just buying the drugs. You can get the drugs here, but you're probably also buying the expertise that comes with it or some, some other kind of feature that also goes into the drug use beyond simply the purchase of it itself. It's not like flying to Amsterdam in the 80s or the 90s when you were a kid or a teenager or whatever, and then you're like, oh, we can smoke weed now in Amsterdam because it was the only place where you could get it that was le- that was legal. Um, it's not like that anymore, but you might now get with Thailand a broader suite of services that 
uh, is somewhat exclusive to the area. Look, I'm very much into the grappling aspect of MMA. I love it. I was having a discussion with some other MMA fans about Volkanovski possibly moving to 155, and I told them that Volkanovski has never faced a wrestler gra- grappler near the skill level of Makachev. They then argued tirelessly that Chad Mendes is, in fact, a better wrestler grappler than Makachev. Boy, that is debatable. Which I then told them was downright laughable, in my opinion. So I want to get your thoughts on the differences between the wrestling and grappling of a Chad Mendes type versus a Makachev type wrestler. Chad Mendes is a little bit more a wrestler that got his best practices from the era, era in which he came up. So he's a big double leg guy, change level guy. You can see already, he, you know, from the, his folk style wrestling background, he's going to be, you know, a knee pound level change, blast double kind of guy. He often finds himself in guard. Um, he does. He can weaponize slams sometimes by virtue of how he can drive his weight into them. Um, he did get. He did take Volkanovski down. I think a few times in that fight. Although he didn't. Uh, what? How long was he able to hold him down? Let's see. Let's see. I think he got. I want to say at least two takedowns on Volkanovski. I rewatched that recently. Uh, it was last MMA fight too. He got three takedowns. Three of four. How did he get him? One in round two and two in round two. But here's the key. You're like, oh, he took him down. He got one of two in round one. He held him for nine seconds. Nine total seconds. Basically nothing. And then in round two, he got two takedowns for a whopping total of control of 36 seconds. Also not much. So what I would say is that, one, Makachev uh, has a very different style because he has a lot of different... Okay, so understand what like Habib and Makachev do. They have what I would argue is a broader suite of tools upon which to make takedowns. They can go double leg, single leg. They can run the pipe. They can do the traditional level change, hip hip and leg attack takedowns. They can go upper body takedowns, sacrifice throws, uh, lateral drops, any kind of Greco attack. They've got those. Maybe not the full array of them, but they've got a pretty decent amount of them. Plus, then they can transition between side to side. With some of the stuff from Sambo, a slash judo, Harai Goshi's, Taitoshi's, Uchimata's, Osotogari's. They've got all kinds of stuff, and they blend them all back and forth, all with a style that creates back exposure, wrist control, and ground and pound. Dude, Chad Mendez is very much not that. He is not that at all. So, number one, who has a more sophisticated game? Islam Makachev has a much more sophisticated game. Than Chad Mendez. Now, Chad Mendez did have good takedowns. How many? Let's see what his takedown percentage was. Takedown defense was 100%, so he's a phenomenal takedown defense. Dude, he had 100% against these names Volkanovsky, Jury, Frankie Edgar, Conor McGregor, Ricardo Lamas, Jose Aldo, Nick Lentz, Clay Guida, Darren Elkins, Yeltsin Meza, Cody McKenzie, Jose Aldo, Hani Yaya, Michihiro Omigawa, who you guys may not know, but was a very good fighter. Uh, Javier Vasquez shouts to him. I think he, um, he, he was sick a while ago. I think he's doing better now. Cub Swanson, Anthony Morrison, a cheesesteak, Anthony Morrison, and then uh, out of Philly, and then Eric Koch. Dude, he got 100% takedown defense on all of that. That's fucking impressive. Takedown accuracy, 55%, which is actually slightly above average. What was he good for? Takedowns per 15 minutes. Uh, he, let's see, uh, 4.13. So he was on him. He was on him, but he had a much different style. It was level change, open space, against the fence, take you down. He was very effective with that in large part, but that's just not the style of Islam. So your question was, 
is a better wrestler grappler than Makachev. He doesn't have nearly the same submission threat. He doesn't have nearly the same ground and pound and control threat. He doesn't have nearly the same level of modern game. Don't, don't get me wrong. For the for the era in which Chad Mendez came up, which is, by the way, he came up in the WEC, um, for the era in which he came up, he had very good, very important uh, takedown ability. But Makachev is 2.0 and then some. So, no, I would say your friends are very confused. If Jan and Marab were to fight, do you think the amount of rounds would play an important factor in who would win? Yeah. with Marab, Especially with Marab's motor. Like, would it fade if he took punishment fourth or fifth? You have to wonder. But yes, a three-round fight against Marab Davalashvili, especially if you're like Jan and is sort of relatively slow starting, it's a tough, that's a tough way to fight. Any, uh, let's see this one. Didn't you, I'm trying to give ones that just got a thumbs up. Uh, Luke, I'm doing my yearly scroll of the UFC Fight Pass library. Just a few questions for you. Why did Joe Silva insist on being the first person in the octagon to shake the winner's hand after every fight? And have you heard any crazy Joe Silva stories? I've heard a million crazy Joe Silva stories, including when I told you guys that he got real bitter at me one time and called me up. Um, but he was fine after that. I think, so you have to understand, like, the matchmakers are often the, like, Dana doesn't deal with the managers all that much or hardly at all or the fighters directly. He he goes to, the, the the matchmakers do that. And remember, it used to be just Joe Silva. So he was kind of like the guy that made the fights happen. He was the one that had the discussions either with the fighter or the fighter's manager. You know, those were all the emails where they were trying to put together fights and blah, blah, blah. Shelby was there, but he didn't have, they didn't, there wasn't dual matchmakers. It was mostly Joe Silva and then Joe Silva and Sean Shelby kind of were a duo. And then he moved on and then it was, McMaynard who came in and all that. You guys know the story, but the point I'm trying to make is he was the intermediary between the organization and the fighter, so I think he sort of felt an obligation to to do that. Why is Frank Mir not ever talked about as much as others when it comes to all-time great heavyweights? Um, probably because he has enough losses that people forget about all the great things that he did. You know, he had the Lesnar losses, or the Lesnar loss, excuse me, um, wasn't great. Obviously, you know, uh, like, but, but I mean, who was around for some of the amazing things that he did? Like, who was around when he broke Tim Sylvia's arm from guard? You know, who was around for that? I, re I remember that clearly, but, you know, there's just not a lot of people around anymore. And, like, I don't remember the motorcycle accident and how hard it was for him to come back, losing to, to Vera, barely beating, I think, Dan Christensen. And, you know, and then it wasn't until the Anthony Hardonk fight that he came back around and he looked so much better. And then he went on this other run and, um, people just don't know the story. They don't know the story. And he had enough, you know, Noguera was worshipped, I think, for a lot of the right reasons. But you're probably right that Mir is owed a little bit more than he got. But I just think that there's a big parts of his career that people missed. And there were a lot of shortcomings. I mean, there's a lot, to, please don't misunderstand me, there was a ton of successes. But he had a fair share of failures too. And sometimes the media and the, the community more generally, they... Some people get elevated and some people don't. I don't really have a great answer for it. I'd have to look more closely at their records and the timeline to see. But I think just a big part of it is if I had to ask the average MMA fan, like, what made Noguera special, they they might be able to tell me, like, legendary chin and blah, blah, blah. And they might tell me the same with, like, again, speaking of Joe Silva, and people, you know, people know this, but he used to call Frank Mir is what happens when technique meets horsepower. That's a Joe Silva quote. 
uh, for Frank Mir. Um, I don't know if I don't know. If, I mean, yeah, they probably know that he has the submission ability, but could they name his best? Do they even know that he submitted Nogueira? You know, broke his fucking arm. I don't even know if they know that. Um, I could be wrong. How do you think a potential Cejudo Volkanovski fight would go? I think it would go real bad for Henry Cejudo. I don't think he would. I, I, I don't think he would get the takedown. I think Volkanovski is strong for featherweight. I don't think he would get the takedown even if he got it. I don't think he'd keep it. So that wouldn't really be there. Um, the question is sort of at what range might they fight, and that could change things a little bit. But um, um, I tend to think that Volkanovski would just do the same thing he does to everybody. Uh, I don't know what, you know, there's probably a couple things they could take away from him, you know, for sure. I think that a couple of weapons, but I. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of reluctance to accept what is happening with Volkanovski. There's a lot of reluctance. There's a lot of reluctance among people to have like a conversation about exactly how good he is and exactly why that's working. And I don't think until that conversation gets into high gear that you know, who are the one like when Rob didn't, when Rob was just sort of Rob Whitaker, when he was sort of moving on anger and like, you know, he was off for a while and there were some issues, but when he tried to fight Adesanya that way, what happened? Like, it went poorly. You can't have a hope of beating Adesanya until you accept what he's, you know, obviously Blahovich probably did the same thing, but at middleweight anyway, you cannot have a hope of beating him until you accept what he's good at. You just have to accept that. And I just, I, I'm not saying this for Cejudo specifically because, you know, it's hard to know how much he's massaging the market to get a fight versus what he actually believes. But I definitely hear a lot of conversations around Volkanovski that are like, yeah, I guess he's good. It's like, dude, how was that not immediately obvious? How was that not immediately obvious? If you're watching a guy and you're confused as to what he's doing and you've been watching fights a long time, that should ring alarm bells in your head. I forgive the newer fans who just can't tell what one guy is doing apart from the other one. That's normal and totally understandable. But if you've been watching fights for a long time and you were looking at this being like, I don't see what's different about it. Boy, you got some questions to start asking yourself. I remember the first time, the, the right after, like from the, remember the Aldo fight and even the Mendez fight a little bit. And he didn't do it nearly as much in the Mendez fight, but especially in the Aldo fight. I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? I just didn't even understand it at first. It took a long time. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of layers I still don't even get. But, like, that was the same thing with Adesanya. Like, how is he setting all of this up where, like, this just lands? So, they they actually made me bet. Like, Israel Adesanya and uh, Alexander Volkanovsky, I feel like they made me better at watching tape. Because, I, like, I had to raise my level just to follow them. I couldn't get better until I accepted that they, not that I that were adversaries, but you see what I'm saying? I had to accept that, like, Jesus, this is different. It's different. A lot of people don't move like they move and think about offense the way they do it and then construct a game around an idea or a few ideas that are, like, these defining principles of their game. I think a lot of people don't put nearly as much thought into that and then have the, then the ability to execute it like the, and they're not the only ones. Whitaker will be another one too, and you can go on. And there are, uh, Tom Aspinall seems like an early version of that. We'll see. There's a lot of guys you could point to who are like that, but I'm just sort of pointing out this is next level stuff. And it's like I grant that it might be hard to reproduce. Fine, 
But what I'm hearing is either hostility to the idea or like rejection of the idea that there's something even to learn. And I'm like, word? Hmm. <laughs> You're not going to have a hope of beating this dude until you have a clear sense of why he is an extraordinary threat. Only after that is it, is is victory even possible. <laughs> Folks asking about fight companions, I would like doing them, but they make... The problem with the fight companion is that if you watch the fight companion, you can't do the post-fight stuff. And one, I tend to get better numbers on the post-fight stuff. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is... Um, I don't know. I kind of like doing the post-fight stuff better. When you do, when you do just the the companion, you owe all your attention to that, and it kind of limits you from doing all the other stuff that you like. And so, it's not worth the trade-off. It's one. I, I will do them in a circumstance where I'm not planning to do anything post-fight. Then I would do it if that makes sense. Damn, it's like, dude, they don't. They wait until I'm on here, and then they're like, "We got to send him all the text messages on Earth." people very obsessed with my appearance yeah whilst probably an immediate rematch is not in the cards I would hope how do you potentially see a third fight with Jan and Sterling going I was pretty much in the same boat as you coming into the second fight now, but now it's a bit murky as to the trajectory of a third bout yeah I'm with you I'm with you now I don't know um, what you have to ask yourself is how many times could Aljamain Sterling reproduce this effort again? He may not have to, so it, the question may not even be relevant. But, um, you know, I can't tell anymore because I didn't think he was capable of doing what he did on Saturday, and he did. He very much did. And so when you're wrong that way, you got to be like, well, okay, what do I really understand about him? Not, probably not nearly as much as I imagine myself to understand. So yeah, I would. Pro I, you know what? When it, when in situations like when you know, listen, it's it's totally fine to for fun. I think this guy's gonna win. They end up being wrong, but like you knew why you were wrong. Okay, he has to do X to get a chance to win. Then he goes in there and he can't do it. You're like, yeah, of course. That mean you know, that wasn't gonna happen. It's it's a little bit different when you're like, oh, this person's not capable of doing this. And then they go in there and they they do it. Uh, like it's one thing to be like, well, they're capable of it, but it's hard to reproduce or they come sometimes they're error prone versus I don't even know this is on the table. I didn't know what he was going to do was on the table. And it was, that's impressive. That's impressive. You got, you have to tip your hat to him. Uh, and I do. So for that reason, if they ever had a third fight, I would take a very non-committal approach. Just, you, you know, you can't be wrong like that and be like, Oh, now I figured it out. I, it's it's hard to still it's and, and by the way it was still a very competitive fight like it could still be close no matter when they rematch tomorrow a year from now five years from now so I would just I would take a little bit of humility there and be like I kind of a wait and see approach so you're asking which way I would lean candidly I I really don't know anymore I you know I've got my brain has got these Piotr Jan preferences but in terms of my you know my my analytical eye. But clearly that failed me. So, uh, I won't. Well, the question is what chance do you give Trump to win the election in 2024 given the raise in inflation, cost of living, as well as the Democrats' inability to reduce crime? 
um, handling of international affairs? Well, you know, it's a very loaded question, but I'll ask you, are, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question in this way. Trump, I don't know. The, the whole DeSantis thing seems quite interesting, but what chance do I give of Biden being reelected in 2024? Poor, very poor, poor chance. Um, by the way, who knows if this is true, but I talked with somebody who is involved, like their whole job is, um, they work in shipping, they work for shipping companies, in particular um, uh, farm materials, not like for crops basically. And what they were saying was, they told me that it's not out of the realm of possibility that there could be, not like run on the grocery store food shortage, I don't mean that, but that there could be certain crop shortages so that things like wheat aren't as prevalent. So like it might be hard to get bread or something. Then they didn't they didn't go out and say, oh, there's not going to be any bread on the shelves. But they did. They were like, we're not exactly sure which way it's going to go and when it's going to show up and how bad. But they said it's definitely in the realm of possibility. Like I don't know how any incumbent keeps their job if something like that happens. So keep that in mind. All right. I've asked this uh, something similar before, but how can you logically say round one has the same value as round two in the Jan Sterling fight? I just don't understand how you can argue with any logic. They are both 10 nines because here's my logic. They're both 10 nines. That's how I'm able to do that, right? We keep going back to the same problem. What is the problem with the scoring if round one in Jan Sterling, which most folks can agree is at a bare minimum, very close, very, very competitive, hard to decipher, with a round number two, which is the only relevant question is, is it 10-9 or 10-8? And then we sort of go through the motions about what deserves 10-8, and then you decide it doesn't, it probably probably doesn't meet the 10-8 definition. So then you get to a point where you're like, well, how can both of these be 10-9s? As I have explained before, um, it is not correct to say that each score, 10-9, 10-8, 10-7, only means one thing. Right, because you can get many different fights in that range that can meet a description of 10-8. 10 7 is a little harder to do that with, but still possible. And then 10-9. The difference is that that range for 10-7 is very narrow, and the range for 10-8 is also not as narrow, but very narrow relative to 10-9, which is this. The latitude for what we call 10-9 is this, and if it's all the fights that fit in between, then you have the latitude for 10-8, which is this. And then you have the latitude for 10-7, which is barely noticeable. That's why. I won't say it means 1 versus 2. I've said this in the past and it wasn't quite right. But what you have to understand is 10-8 has much more of a singular meaning. 10-9 does not. Now, you might say to me, Luke, that's stupid because why would they construct a, a scoring criteria where 10-9 means this many kinds of different rounds and fights and 10-8 can only mean this many and... Parts of that 10-9 look like what you would call a 10-9. They're much closer to being a 10-8 than they would be something on the other end of the 10-9 spectrum. I totally agree with you. I think it's not a great way to do it, but that's what we have done. That's why the scoring is what the scoring is. When you ask me how can you score round one and round two a 10-9, the answer I'm going to give you is not that we have a great system where a 10-9 has a very clear and precise application. Rather, what I'm going to tell you is, because 10-9 does not have a very clear and precise application, for that reason, it does involve rounds one and round two and not 10-8. A 10-9 means, it means close round and clear round. 
Ten eight means you nearly got your bitch ass stopped, and ten seven is the doctor probably needs to get involved here. There's a much wider definition, a much broader swath of things. And so you might say, well, then what should we do? Should we call one ten nine and a half? I don't know. I don't know how you fix this problem because it would change scoring fundamentally at this point. We've got a real problem where we now have ascribed the dot. I mean, the ten nine scorecard, right? When you think about it, for any round, any fight, that's the most common one. It's the most common one, which on some level it should be. That that sounds right. Like most rounds aren't going to be crazy rounds. Most are going to be relatively normal-ish. But the problem is we have given such latitude to it that we have now made it a nearly, not quite, a nearly incoherent definition. It does have coherence because we know what it's not. We know it's not something that would fit much closer to a 10-8. But inside that 10-9 universe, it pretty clearly deserves to be split on some level where one we keep a 10-9 for a close round and then some other kind of value for something that is a, a clear round but as long as close and clear both mean 10-9 welcome to scoring welcome ladies and gentlemen this is the problem among many others This is where where we're at on all of this. So that's why. If you have found a logical dissimilarity between clear and concise, congratulations, you are right. Here's the problem. That don't mean shit. That's the problem. Clear and concise. Oh, so what am I saying? Clear and concise. Um, close and, and clear. Close and clear. They both mean 10-9. So as long as that's the case, I'm not sure what to tell you. So, you know, when folks are like, like I think Aljamain Sterling has been like, it can't really be true that round one and round two mean the same thing. And, he, and in that sense, he's totally right. Having someone's back for three, what is it, three minutes and 53, 54 seconds, something insane. And, you know, you're firing choke attempts and you're you know, land decent shots here and there. How can that mean the exact same thing? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. But it does. It absolutely does. That's the... There you go. Maybe the solution would be to widen the definition of 10-8, but then when you only have three... See, folks haven't thought this through. They're like, oh, well, then just make 10-8s greater. But if you're in three-round fights, changing that up could mean you get new scoring patterns that don't accurately reflect the realities either. It's not a very simple problem to solve. It's not a function of just being like, oh, just expand the definition of 10-8. Dude, in three-round fights, that can cause havoc. Um, so no, I don't know that I'm a fan of that either. Have you, did you ever get to see Pantera live? No. Well, sort of, but no. Not really is the answer. Part of a festival once, but not, not, the answer is not really. You saw the reinventing the steel tour at the tabernacle. Okay, seems like folks are rolling with Aljo versus TJ being the next logical matchup for the title. Uh, oh, Jesus. Okay. 
TJ returned after a long layoff, and it seemed like the majority thought Sanhagen edged him, whereas Aldo has put together three quite clear wins in succession versus Munoz, Chito, and Font. Had Jan got the win? Yes. If you're asking me, am I all in favor of Aljo versus Aldo? Yes, I am. I'd be, I'd be more than happy with it. I understand TJ's point, too. He had the long layoff. He got No one ever took it from him. Then he fought Sanhagen, and about that I kind of thought Sanhagen deserved to win in, but whatever. And then... uh. But he did win. He got he got the nod. And then he gets injured. It would depend on Aljo, I guess. But if you're asking me, am I in favor of Aldo getting one? Sure. Absolutely. Please turn up the volume. Yeah, I know. It's a sure SM7B, so it needs a cloud lifter, a preamp to get more volume. I'm, yes, I'm aware. Luke, why do many elite fighters lack head movement? Um... He mentions that we've seen a bunch of fighters with it. I'm not sure who some of these guys. Oh, Charles Justin Chandler. I think he means the lightweights. Among others who don't really move their heads to dodge strikes, it seems kind of obvious that the first thing to learn while striking would be the dodge strikes to avoid damage. Why do so many fighters avoid this? Keep up the great work here. Uh, again, offense always comes before defense, typically, in someone's development. That's the first thing. The second part is they don't quite see the need for it as much as you might. Like They, you, they think that I'm not speaking for any of these particular fighters, but as a general rule, when I brought it up, they're like, yeah, you know, it's not so... They, don't, they just don't see it as a giant problem worth investing in. Remember, they have a limited amount of time to train relative to all the things they have to train. They have to get to the ones they see as the dominant priority. But I'm with you. It's like, <clears throat> if you look at the very best fighters, uh, some level of respectable head movement is almost always a component. Uh, having that as a bare minimum seems quite necessary. It's, it's very weird to watch, even in the UFC, I said this to Volkanovsky, it's very weird when you watch him or Max or Israel or just anybody elite, Valentina, whoever, and then you watch somebody who just got to the UFC. It's like, it's not just two different levels of fighting. The sport barely looks the same. They don't have nearly the level of skill. And of course, you're like, yeah, those are the very best fighters on earth. I understand. I don't know. Maybe a sharper eye would be able to tell me the same thing. Yeah, because if you watch college football versus American, like uh, NFL, there's a monster gap between them. And I guess, you know, watching the different schemes would tell you that. But still, I don't know. It just seems to me that there's a lot of guys who get in there, and, and ladies too, and they should listen to their coaches and they should follow it. But there isn't enough consideration for like, okay, what are the very best people doing and why are they doing it? And what lessons can we learn even at our stage of the development? What, what, what part of that is. And you heard him talking about how he just doesn't see enough of the blending of the uh, training, among other problems that he identified. I, I wonder about all that. I wonder if there's enough attention. I don't know, but I wonder if there's enough attention being paid to um, what lessons can we learn even from people significantly better than us about where we need to go. Um, how does Hamsat stack up against Colby? I think we talked about this last week, right? Or on Sunday? It's interesting. It, it's again. It's again. It's going to be a function of again. Does Hamzat fight in a disciplined way or not? Two. Can Colby get the takedown or not? If he can get the takedown, can he do anything with it? That's a. I'm. I'm tempted to say he probably can't. So it's going to be more of a striking affair, like in the way that Usman was largely able to negate it. So it's going to be a striking affair, and does Hamzat, you know, just jab him and leg kick him, and then find the uppercut and keep it basic but win? 
or does he kind of go out in front of his skis and Colby is able to take over late? It really depends. Again, we're going to need to see what Hamzat learned from this last fight. Without knowing that, you know, so you're asking, can a disciplined Hamzat beat Colby? Yes. Can an undisciplined one beat him? Also, yes, but much less likely. Uh, well, this is a very difficult one, so I'll give my best to it, but I don't know what to say exactly. Luke, my father is about to pass from stage four lung cancer. I am terribly sorry to hear that. Hospice has moved in and everything. I'm 24 years old, and I feel like I don't have shit to live for. That is quite normal. It's hard for me to find motivation to even get out of bed. That is also quite normal. Uh, I don't know what I need to do to get over this feeling. I feel like I'm dying along with my father. My question is, what makes you keep going when everything is telling you to stop? Well, I don't know if everything is telling you to stop, um, but what you're feeling is entirely normal given the circumstances. First of all, I'm terribly, terribly sorry to hear about it. And I don't really have, um, I don't really know what to tell you. People always ask me, what did you do? Uh, what do you do before a situation like this where, you know, I don't know what is worse where you can see the decline of someone and it, it's staring at you and it's the sort of inevitability you're waiting for or, you know, it, to just have a disaster sprung upon you, which was like what I experienced. Um, they both seem pretty horrible. They both seem pretty horrible. There really is no good answer to this. Um, the only thing I can tell you that I hope will be of service to you and to remember is that the way you are feeling is entirely normal. Um, it feels abnormal to your everyday experience because it is unusual, but it is entirely normal, which isn't to say pleasant or like no big deal. I don't mean that, but you are not a weirdo. Nothing is wrong with you. Um, in that sense, uh, while difficult and dismaying and confusing for you, you should know you are experiencing something quite normal. It's the first thing I'd say. I think the only other piece of advice that I would try to give you is, um, you know, I don't know what to live for when people say stuff like that. Um, I never felt that way. I did feel confused about like, what am I, how am I going to live my life now? Because a parent, especially if, you know, depending when you lose them, uh, 24 is still young. I was what I was 23, about the same age as you, about the same age. And, um, I just, I was like, how am I going to navigate the world now? Motherless, you know, it was, a, it was a really weird concept to think of now. It's like, I don't even, I, mean, I don't even know what it would mean to have a, my mom around anymore. Like it would be, it'd be, it would be strange at this point, you know? And so, so I mean, I would welcome it obviously, but it would be, it would be an adjustment. Let's put it that way. But the point I wanted to make to you was, you know, uh, the best advice that someone like me can give you who is not an expert in mental health or certainly not in the grieving process or anything else is that um, beyond what I've already said to you, this being normal, I think, too, you need to be as nice to yourself as possible. You have to remember that your thoughts are waves and your brains are rocks. Right and the and or the 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 shore, however you want to imagine it, your thoughts are going to wash over your brain constantly. Right, they're just going all day long. They're just rinsing it, 
you have to make sure that that loop is as positive as possible because if you tell yourself a bunch of negative things about yourself or about the experience or about everything else, and I understand that experiencing them will be normal, but I'm just trying to point to you that like there's some degree of having mercy on yourself that you need to have as well. It sounds also like, you know, you're having difficulty reconciling um, how you feel about all of it. Just try to be as accepting of the process as you can and try to have that feedback feedback loop as positive as possible given the circumstances. I don't mean phony, but I do mean um, sober to the extent possible. Try not to self-abuse because I did that. It doesn't lead you anywhere. I think the more important thing I would say is relative to the thoughts and whatnot is that... Uh, you have to put your body and your mind in the best position to steal itself because you're, you, you have to accept the grief and you have to work and process through it, which is important because if you self-abuse, you just delay that process. That's all that that does. It numbs you out so you can just delay that process. But that bill will come due as well. And so what I mean to say is the thing I did not do that I really regret during the time that I experienced all of the things I experienced in 2003 was that I did not take care of myself. In fact, I went the opposite direction. And it turns out that the resources you need to get through this, they will come from, you know, psychological counseling and talking to people, but they will also come from to the extent possible, and this will be disrupted, living a normal life. Even if it means quite literally going through the actual motions, you know, uh, it seems stupid, but getting outside, going for walks, staying active, trying to trying to get some sleep, talking to people through your feelings, getting professional help, having a routine, having a schedule, having something you're accountable to. It sounds insignificant, but I will tell you it pays long-term dividends. And I, again, I'm going to say it one more time. I, I tried the other method. Boy, is it a path to nowhere. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. It fixes all it does is hit the pause button. That's all it does. And even then, it comes with other health consequences and and leads to all kinds of other problems. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. The best thing you can do is take care of yourself. The best thing you can do is be kind to yourself. And the best thing you can do is um, talk to someone who can help keep you on a path of relative, relative normalcy. That is the thing that will steal you the best. That is the thing that will help you process all of this the best. And this is the thing that will put you in, again, circumstances being what they are, the healthiest mindset you can be to deal with something this this um, difficult. That's what I would say. And I hope you really take a long listen to that because all of that will affect your thinking. Your, your thoughts are a function of your actions. It, it, people think it's the other way, but it's not. How you live in this world will, will it will send messages back to your brain and how you process them and how you accept them and then what lessons you learn from them. All of this will will make a huge difference over time. So you you really got to put yourself in um, as as hard as it may be and as uneven and difficult as it may be. You can't self abuse because it will it will fix nothing. All right. Let's see if we can get some of these uh, other questions answered, the ones you paid for. If there are any, I don't know if there are, but I'm going to see real quickly because then i got to get out of here. Your boy got to go catch a bird. All right. Let's see, let's see. All 
Um, you often talk about the metagame in MMA. How would you define the metagame means in the context of MMA? It, maybe this isn't the best way to describe it because metagame can actually be something a little bit different what I'm about to say. But typically what metagame is is sort of like best practices, best thoughts about particular strategies or how certain environments should be fought in, right? That's, that's the best way I would describe it. Uh, I want to say thanks for all the content. I owe you a lot more for this. You don't owe me anything. Um, I've watched you since finally a couple years ago. Love you, big man. No homo. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. How did Volk... And by the way, it could be homo too. There'd be no problem. But, um, but thank you just the same. How did Volk change up his striking system for TKZ? He didn't change his system. He changed maybe some of the patterns or something. He didn't change the system. Additionally, just how modular is his system overall? I don't fully understand his system, so I'm a little bit hesitant to give an answer there. But basically, the range at which he fights and the what, what you know, they have to be aware of certain uh, overall paths that, that you know a guy's going to take. In this case, Korean Zombie with his counterboxing, that's going to be the biggest threat. And so they have to kind of assess how to diffuse it from afar a little bit and test certain things. But then the, the style makes that possible. The style makes it possible to fight at a range, to pull out weapons or set up other attacks that minimize it one way or the other. And... Um, so his style didn't change. Maybe particular applications changed. I should really do a breakdown on that fight, but it's hard to do that when you're traveling and you got a, you're a dad. So, how about that Tuesday first edition of the Volk interview? Boy, I nearly. <laughs> you guys should have seen what happened. Wow. Um, someone says your interview with Volk was fantastic. Thank you. Being in partnership with the UFC and president of Cage Warriors is Graham Boylan being the manager of UFC fighters at Conflict of Interest? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. Uh, I, I, I like Cage Warriors. I don't know Graham Boylan personally. I know a lot of folks think that this is not, you're asking me my opinion. It's not a personal attack. But if you're asking me, if you're the promoter of one organization and you are the manager even of fighters in a different organization, this is literally illegal in boxing. Um, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm against it. I know it was a little while ago, but just want to get your thoughts on Diego Sanchez versus Kevin Lee at Eagle FC. He barely lost and had a couple, uh, and had COVID weeks before and no team or actual camp. Well, he did have a team. Uh, well, he had a, he had a, he had a head trainer, um, that should be noted. So I don't, that, that, that story gets lost a little bit, but yes, he had a very short camp and it wasn't that great. Um, and it didn't really prepare him. Kevin Lee's injury really sets everything up. I just don't. What I saw, it, it, I don't. I like Kevin Lee a lot. I really do. I still believe in his upside. You know, and, and you can mess, make of that what you want. Um, but I do. And I thought his wrestling and his ground pound looked great. I did not think his striking looked great. But I don't know how much of that was just him dealing with the knee injury. So I'm going to wait to see what happens next. We'll see what happens next. But it it did. What worries me, and I don't have we'll have to see was that I still didn't see Lee using a ton of like fainting and, and uh, angles and whatnot. And I think that's why Diego had a little bit more success in the striking. Cause it's just a lot easier to anticipate attack under those circumstances. Uh, Volkanovsky is a fantastic mixed martial artist and seemingly excellent chef. Do you think there's a connection between the two? No. Is building a style for MMA, like gathering ingredients to make a dish? No, no. <laughs> someone goes love you Luke bro and yes all homo that's cool man that's fine too um, Luke what is your opinion on Valerie Lareda's future in MMA don't know how long she's going to have one she seems to be interested in doing a lot of other stuff 
Did I not see she was doing a tryout with WWE? Something like that. We'll see. You know, I don't I don't know exactly how far this is all going to go or if it's going to pivot to something else. Um hard to say, but you know, right now I would I would not it does not appear that penciling in a championship future is uh, necessary. Prime Fedor is a top two heavyweight all time. His cardio and balanced high level game would give away, would give way more trouble to heavyweights now than people think. True, his speed. He was so fast and explosive. They couldn't do shit to him. Um, that was a big part. He was competing intentionally, like you know, walking around two thirty or something like that. Maybe high two thirties. Yeah, maybe a little bit more than that, but somewhere around there. And you know, he you know he had a little blubber, had a little jiggle, but he was still so explosive, so explosive. It's crazy. How often do you cut your hair and trim your beard? I cut my hair about once every six weeks, and I trim my beard less than that, something like that. I trimmed it up though. How's it look? Looks all right. A little bit better, right? All right. Are there any more of these? If not, we got to get the fuck out of here. Oh, there's a couple more. Um, Luke, if Habib would have gone, would have had one more fight in spring of 2021 against Charles Oliveira, how do you think that fight would have gone down? I think he would have won. I think he would have won. Before, I was a little bit wishy-washy on it, but now I'm not. I think he would have won. Uh, Luke, what type of deadlift do you prefer doing? Conventional, sumo, and trap bar? I like them all. And I'm, oh, that's a bullshit answer. I, I don't go super wide with sumo. So I prefer sumo the most. But I like, I mean, it's like, you know, 55, 45. I like sumo just a little bit. I feel like I get a better contraction um, in my posterior chain with the with the uh, sumo. So I like it a little bit better. But I get a good one from conventional too. Right now I'm doing trap bar just to, for like general fitness purposes, only because um, I have the, um, I have the kabuki, the kabuki strength bar. Uh, what was it called? The HD bar is the one I bought from, uh, from, um, from kabuki strength. So I use that a little bit. All right? Appreciate you guys watching. I got to go catch a bird. Uh, if you see me walking past you in Dallas, just keep going. No, I'm teasing. You can get, you can say hi. I'm, not, I'm doing a bit. Uh, but thank you guys so much for watching. Again, I brought a very small camera rig. I'll do my best with it. We'll see what we can do. But I appreciate you guys watching. This will be up on podcast today. I think Othello is watching this right now. And uh, yeah, until next time, stay frosty.